From Muhlenberg College, this is 2400 Chew. I'm Tammy Katzoff, and in each episode of this podcast, I talk to one Muhlenberg graduate about their current work and the industry in which that work is done. For this episode, I spoke with Tom Dunkel, class of 1972, who is a professional writer. Tom has been a book author as well as a newspaper and magazine writer. His current project is a narrative nonfiction book about members of the German resistance during World War II. I sat down with Tom at his Washington, D.C. home, and as I do with all of these interviews, I began the conversation by asking how and when he became interested in his occupation. When I was at Muhlenberg, actually before, I did not ever work for my high school newspaper. I never worked for my college newspaper. I uh, strategically fumbled my way through life. I graduated from Muhlenberg with, I don't even know if they have a social science major anymore, which is essentially you you could pick two majors. And for reasons unknown to me, I picked sociology and psychology, which I had no interest in and and made no use of. (laughs) Either Uh, one of those. Either one of those. Okay. Uh, My brother had gone to Muhlenberg four years, five years before me. And I'm guessing he may have been a social science major, but I have no idea. And, and the, again, I was a good student. I, I mean, I, I graduated with, with a good cum, and I was always, uh, I was a student, but I, I had no direction at that time. And in retrospect, that's, of course, we all look back at those years and say, I would have liked to have a little more direction at that time. Mm-hmm. But you don't want to be overly directed. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I graduated, the things that influenced me career-wise at Muhlenberg, and I I can't remember if this was sophomore year or senior year. I took a course by a professor who's no longer there on American romantic poetry and prose. And that was, I had been a, you know, I had always taken honors English in high school. I had a background in English, but this really opened my eyes up to what good writing was when you read. And that was Thoreau and Emerson. And I think maybe even drifted into, into Sandberg and such, but the appreciation of good writing, that's, there was a light bulb that went off there. And then in my senior year, I took a course at Mora- night course at Moravian College in film production. And this is f- film production back in the days when we were doing eight millimeter film right. production with, with scotch Actual tape slices, yeah. <laughs> little, little teeny reels. Um, so I had had an interest in, in writing and, and the creative arts. I didn't know exactly what path I wanted to follow with that. So when I got out of college, I went back to my old summer job in, in Port Newark, New Jersey, unloading freight cars at warehouses, and went to night school in New York City at the New School for Social Research to take some film production and film editing courses. Mm. The person who was teaching that course was an old-time documentary filmmaker by the name of Arnold Eagle, who went back to the days, he was, he was one of the crew members of Nanook in the North, which was a wow. documentary made, I believe, in 1747. Somewhere <laughs> wow. So Arnold hired me as his production assistant after I took those courses. So I would commute into New York, and I can still remember. And this was bad money in those days. It was $40 a week to work for about 60 hours to be, to be exploited to death mm. by a filmmaker. And, of course, people were lining up for this job. Yeah, that's, it hasn't really changed much since yeah. then, unfortunately. So I worked uh, for him for a little bit. Then I started doing some freelance production work in New York. And I realized that I, I was getting pushed into the technical end of film, which I didn't enjoy. So I left New York for a year. I took a, a sabbatical, worked as a social worker for one year in New Jersey, 
And I had had resumes floating around New York City. And I got a call from the United States Committee for UNICEF to go with a job with their PR department, in audiovisual and producing PSAs and writing for them. And then I did that, went one year to a trade association as a writer, and then decided if I'm going to write, I need to go back to school. Mm. So when I was 30 years old, I, I went to graduate school at NYU, and I started the first semester at night. NYU at that time had an evening pro. Columbia had its, its glamour program, full-time day school. Mm-hmm. NYU was geared towards working people, a lot of them in the business who wanted graduate degrees. So I went to NYU part-time for one semester, went full-time after that, and I started selling my schoolwork, which is how I first got in print. And that was out of necessity. I was elated when Sports Illustrated bought my thesis for the grand price back then of $2,500. And then they didn't run the damn thesis. (laughs) They didn't print the article. I got paid full fee and they never printed the article, which which was an introduction to how journalism often works because you better be prepared (laughs) for disappointment and for somebody killing your stories. Right. But back then I would have... I wanted the byline more than I wanted the money. But from there, I just kept freelancing for a while. Then that led to a couple of staff jobs at a New Jersey Monthly Magazine. Then I came down to Washington, D.C. With a, with a news weekly. Then I went freelance for 10 years, primarily with a, a Washington Post, National Geographic Traveler, Smithsonian. I was under contract at George Magazine, which was John Kennedy's political entertainment magazine that in retrospect was quite ahead of its time. Mm-hmm. And then when John died, uh, I had a book project in motion is actually the book I'm working on right now. And I started drafting a proposal and I had an offer to join the Baltimore Sun. So I thought I should uh, chase job stability for a little bit and went to the Baltimore Sun and, and watched the newspaper fall apart for four years and uh, wow. volunteered for buyout and went back freelance and started book writing again. Now, that migration, that type of a path is not unusual, particularly for these days in, in journalism and in a lot of professions. Uh, you've got to be sort of quick on your feet and be prepared for having rugs pulled out from under you, and you have to be persistent, and you just have to keep hammering away. Mm-hmm. I know it. I have been freelance. I have been staff and everything in between. Independent contractor yep. for a media company has been laid off twice from the same huge corporation, rehired yep. each time by the same corporation. So I know of it. I, I definitely want to talk to you a little bit later about freelance work versus staff work because I talk to students about that a lot who want to go into media and don't really understand what what the benefits are of being freelance or of being staff. So we'll talk more about that. But do you have a typical day? And if you do, how does that work (laughs) while you're working on your book? What's a typical day like? Yeah, fortunately or unfortunately, there's not typical days. Although with this project, I'm I'm working on a fairly accelerated deadline for this project. This is originally was was scheduled as a two year from the point I signed the contract to hand in the manuscript two years, which is which is very tight. Uh, along the way, I got a three-month extension, and I'm maybe meeting that deadline at the mm. end of February. But this is my sense is that I'm trying to do about three years of work right now in two years. So it's heavy, intensive, long, long hours. So I'm working almost double shifts right now. I mean, this this is almost an unhealthy level of pace right now. 
the nature of this project is uh, being that it's World War II based. Uh, it's heavily archive research, not as much phone work as pieces I've done in the past, only because of the age of, you know, I've, I've tracked down some people that are in their mid-90s. Even if you're mid-90s, I mean, you were probably a teenager back then. Mm. And these are sons and daughters of people I'm writing about, or in some cases, uh, parents knew these people. So it's, it's secondhand recollections from people who were young to begin with, talking about people who didn't talk about much of their work to begin with because it was too dangerous when you were in the resistance to often even talk to your spouse. Mm. So I found that the phone interviewing has, and there's a couple of people who've been very helpful to me who are main characters, sons of, in this case, main characters who have been very helpful. But for the most part, it's a little bit more research-oriented than in the past. I just had to cancel a reporting trip to Germany I wanted to do because of the tightness of this deadline. So I'm going to try to get to Germany between doing the first draft on the book and the uh, and second draft. I wanted to go to a couple of the people I am writing about. It's a dark book. There's no <laughs> there's no right. way around that. Dark uh, subject. Yeah, there was not a lot of happy endings. Uh, from hmm. these very courageous people who took great risks, and for most of them, the risks did not pay off. So there's a couple of places in Germany, particularly a couple of the uh, of the concentration camps. I had been to Dachau in the past, but there's a couple of others I wanted to go to and retrace a particular uh caravan that some of these guys were when they were prisoners at the end of the war were taken on. That's going to, again, because of the nature of this deadline, which is unusually pressed, mm. you have to, I mean, it's as we were talking about in, in both professionally and as you work a story or project that you do, I mean, you've got to constantly be shifting uh, with circumstances and yeah. you can, journalism is not a profession where if you can't think well on your feet, you're not going to do real well. Generally, because it, and so much of it is, you know, real life doesn't behave a lot. And when you're under deadline pressures, crazy things are always happening. So you have, you've got to adjust. Sure. So that's one of the adjustments I had to make here. Sure. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm guessing if you were writing this book 20 years ago, being in Washington, D.C., if you were writing in Washington, D.C., you'd probably have to be out and about hitting up different archives and physical spaces, maybe Library of Congress, whatever, to do your research. But... Since now, I imagine most of it can be at your fingertips. You're doing a lot of your work right here where we're sitting. You may be referring to that thing called the internet. Yes, I am. <laughs> you yes, know, I it's, am. It's a, I still do in-person research. And the National Archives is in College Park. I've made multiple trips there. The, the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum is here, which has been a great resource. I've been down there a lot. Mm. No, but you're correct. It's amazing. Uh, the, and we all know the advantages and disadvantages of the internet. And one of the beautiful things about it is it's like having the world's largest library at your fingertips. And part of the disadvantages of that, meaning one o'clock in the morning, if, if you've got an idea for it, wait, I forgot to do that bit of research. You can, you can roll out of bed and get on your computer and start researching. So it can extend your workday to infinity. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no, a lot of that now, I, the, there's, again, depending on the project, if if I can get out as a reporter, I always want to get out in the field first, and I always prefer to talk to people when possible, face to face first. Mm-hmm. Um, again, this, you know, the field trip I wanted to do to Germany was a chance to because you get what you call color details and all those little descriptive things you need. 
but no, so much, it's a blessing right now to be able to, to tap into so much stuff online and so quickly. And also for fact checking purposes, I mean, it's, there's not as many excuses as there used to be to screw up facts. Right. right. Uh, although we still Absolutely do. Absolutely not. Right. But see, part yeah. of the advantage of that is when you go out into the field, mm-hmm. you never know what you're going to bump into while you're looking for something else or who you might bump into. So that's, if you, to just do armchair journalism has its own disadvantages, but there's, there's no denying that. I mean, that's a huge, both a time saver, but also it just, it widens the parameters of research that is available to you because so much is out there. I mean, the, for this book, Going to the National Archives and particularly uh, documents from the Nuremberg War Trials. And a lot of that can be really bad quality because it's on microfilm from 1945. And they were, I guess they were shooting documents back then, you know, with some sort of flatbed cameras that were not really bright. So the quality can be really bad. If you can find somebody that has digitized that and Harvard has digitized part of it, which, you know, I called them and they made it available to me. It's not readily available online. But the fact that, you know, that digital images, can, the quality can be so much better sometimes. So mm. the you know, paper documents and the way they can corrode over the years, it preserves stuff better, aside from the fact if you're fortunate enough that you can keyword research it, depending on how well it's been entered. It's a dream, but... It still helps to go over to the archives and mm. poke around and talk mm-hmm. to the librarians, guys that work with this stuff all the time and occasionally know, yeah, but you know, there's this other document over here. And you just, you know, the element of serendipity comes into any profession, but particularly when you're doing research, you never know the stuff that you're going to stumble on right. that, can, that can lead to something. So, Well, that kind of leads me to my next question. Again, I ask this to everybody. You've been doing this for a little while. You, you've been a journalist for some time, and, and there have been lots of changes in journalism and, and media in general. So what do you see as the most challenging changes in media and be, in being a, a published journalist? Like what, what have you had to do differently that you've had to get used to? And what do you see coming in the future as far as um, more changes ahead? I mean, media obviously is, is an industry that is changing every day. <laughs> so what, what are the big ones that you've seen in your career um, that you've had to deal with and catch up with? And what are some things that you see coming along in the future? One of the things which I was prepared for, having had a background as a freelancer, is just the instability of the profession these days. We've seen the corrosion of the old mainstream media giants. I mean, who would have thought 10 years ago that Time Inc. would be blasted to smithereens or that some of the magazines that used to be out there are not there anymore? The old bedrock mainstream platforms are gone. Those were also platforms that were, were valuable because they paid well. <laughs> Valuable for writers. So uh, the industry has gotten much more fragmented and atomized in a way. Mm-hmm. That You can look at that, perhaps there's a good side of that, in that one of the arguments in the old days when, when we had small, concentrated media companies and limited number of newspapers and TV stations, you're obviously concentrating information in, in fewer hands, and you can argue that points of entry were not as, as many as they are now. The flip side of that is that there's not as many gatekeepers anymore, and also because of the pressure of 24-7 news cycle, the amount of bad information out there right now exceeds by quantum levels what was out there before. So, 
And even as a journalist, I mean, even when you're working in that environment, the time pressures have always been severe. They can be even almost self-imposed time pressures now where people want to get online with something, you know, get something posted as quickly as you can. Sometimes that leads to shortcuts in your journalism or you're pursuing a story as far as you should and do you have it sourced well as you should. So there's that time pressure. There's also the, uh, just the nature of storytelling has changed a bit in that there's much more of emphasis on first-person journalism than there used to be. Uh, when I came up as a writer, uh, you wrote in first-person for essays or maybe an op-ed piece. More and more now, uh, you know, I've written for the Washington Post Sunday Magazine for 25 years. Mm. What audiences expect these days is to insert yourself into a story. They want you to write stories and feature stories in the first person. I, I did one for the Post, uh, the last long piece I did for them, which I had to sh shut down after that to concentrate on this book, was about a church up in Pennsylvania, up in the Poconos, that is very much... Uh, rifle base the part of their gospel is ar-47s and ar-15s it's a brand is reverend moon's two of reverend moon's sons and my inclination would not have necessarily been to do that as a first person piece but editors say well you write this in the first person and in that point i didn't feel like arguing with them about it uh, so i wrote but I, I didn't feel like I was necessary to be in that story in first person. Mm. There's enormous pressure for that these days in journalism. Interesting. And then the other thing, of course, is immediate audience feedback. When you go into the newsroom of the Washington Post, the main floor of the newsroom, there's this huge, it's like if you've been in Grand Central Station and you see how they list the train tracks, you know, they got that big over, I don't know what you call it, a billboard giant thing, and it's always churning track, yeah. you know, track night to Nyack or something. Well, they've got this huge thing hanging over the newsroom that lists, and I know it's more than the top 10, but it's real-time viewing of the website, what people are watching in real time on the website. And they're always paying attention to that, which is good to an extent. But it's bad to an extent that if you're going to end the business at time, because of the amount of data available right now, those metrics can sometimes drive your news judgment perhaps more than they should. And there's, a, there's that balance between you want to serve your readers, so you're interested in reader feedback, but there's also you're a professional journalist for a reason, and you have a sometimes, you know, in 1965, did people necessarily want to read civil rights stories? And if you were putting it up to the readership, there may not have been too many. Right. Or, in the early, or in Vietnam, you know, yeah, we really, do we really want to read another downer story about Vietnam? <laughs> So you've got to balance your, your news judgment. I think sometimes you can get so data-driven that how do you stop that from creeping into a lot of your, of your sensibilities as a reporter and as an editor? Mm. Gosh, we can really go down the rabbit hole with this one oh, because yeah. it's, it's such a big topic, but we can't. You've worked for yourself. You've been freelance. You've been staff writer at different publications. Can you talk just a little bit about what you see as the advantages and disadvantages to both of those? The advantage of, of freelance is certainly the freedom, ostensibly, to write about what you want to write about. If I'm on staff, you often don't have a, you know, there's certain stories you're going to have to do just because they have to be done, and your editor says you got to do this. So you have the ability to, to direct your career to a certain extent a little more. I was, I chose not to specialize in what I did. I, there was never one 
subject area that grabbed me enough that I wanted to concentrate on this. So I, I would write about sports. I would write about politics. I did a lot of adventure travel writing. That would not have been an avenue necessarily or very few and far between on a, on a staff writing situation. Sure. Obviously, the advantage of being on staff is certainly the, the security you have. If you're a freelancer, you're essentially working without a net on the high wire all the time. And if I'm on staff and make a mistake, okay, yeah, I know everybody makes mistakes. We know you, but if you're a freelancer and you make too many mistakes, you're not gonna <laughs> you're not gonna be working again. Right. And there's much so there's much more perform constantly performance pressure. And and yes, you develop relationships with magazines with editors, but you're the pressure to constantly hit your mark. There's no grace. There's no not as much grace or much leeway. So you you have to be able to. Uh, some people don't like that. And also just, you have to be much more self-motivated. I know people that have worked freelance and just, you can panic. Uh, yeah. You know, what do, I, what do I do? Or I just got rejected. The story, you have to be able to sell yourself more. You can't sit at home waiting for the phone to ring and somebody call you up with an assignment. If, if you do that, you're going to slowly starve to death. So you have to be able to generate ideas. And yeah. some people on staff, again, um, you always, if you're in journalism, you have to be able to generate story ideas. But if you're in a newspaper or magazine situation on staff, some ideas are going to be, you know, you sit down, you brainstorm at an editorial meeting, and somebody can toss you an idea. If you're a freelancer, you, you have to come up with your own ideas, and you have to be able to in a way, sell yourself. Yeah, Got to do the hustle. Which was hard for me. In fact, I have I thought that in college, in retrospect, if there should be some sort of, and maybe they do this now because they're much more sophisticated, I, I presume, in, in career counseling, but as crass as it might sound, a, a course in marketing or in, in salesmanship because even though you're not, quote, selling, you're, the product you're selling is yourself. Yeah. So you don't think, well, I'm not a car salesman, I'm not an insurance salesman. But there is a skill involved in presenting yourself and networking and marketing yourself. Now, that's something I don't profess to be really good at, mm. but it's something I also had to learn cold over the years. But it's a, it's a skill. And yeah. when you're on staff, it's not as important a skill. But when you're freelance, you really better be able to do that. Most of my friends still work in television or, or print journalism, and some of them would only want to be freelance. They would never yeah. consider taking a staff job because of the freedom that being freelance affords them, and they can do the kind of work that they want. They could work when they want. They could get more money. You know, it kind of balances out. But yeah, they have to hustle. They, they have to hustle, and they also have to pay for their own health insurance. Um, and you've, and you've <laughs> got to be willing to withstand peaks and valleys. Yeah. I mean, there's going to be dead spots or also rejection. Uh, the querying machine is part of being a freelancer. And a query means, you know, you write a sales, basically a sales pitch mm -hmm. uh, in an email or a letter, why this story idea is good, why I can do it. And it's, a no. it's just like in, in an acting career, people say no. And if you can't take rejection, freelancing is not right for you. Being on staff is much easier in terms of the stress level. Yes. I don't think people realize, oh, freelancing, you make your own hours. Yeah, <laughs> you make your own hours, but there's 16 of them a day sometimes. Yeah. Uh, Look, and, and as I said, I've done both. I was not a good freelancer. Every time a project would be winding down, I would be very anxious about what that next one would be. And, and my goal was always to be on staff and, again, get benefits. There was a almost a 
prejudice, it's probably changed now because the business models have changed. With staffs are so much smaller now, they're more dependent on freelance people than ever. Mm-hmm. But there was a prejudice against freelance people. Oh, there must be, you know, there are people that can't work, they can't take instruction for everybody or they're lazy. It's much harder working freelance than on staff. It is really a grind. And if you uh, go into it, you got to be prepared. You know, there's nights and weekends happen in journalism, but they happen especially in freelance. And that comes as a shock to some people when they go freelance. They just don't realize how many hours you may have to spend uh, at your profession because there's no, there's nobody backing you up. Sure. For a Muhlenberg College student or someone else who was thinking of eventually doing the work that you are doing, what guidance would you give? What words of wisdom would you give them? This may sound as, a, as an okay boomer comment, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I believe that regardless of, of which way you wind up trafficking in the media, whether you go into, into internet, podcasting, whatever, I still think a print platform is necessary for you just in terms of communication and expression. And I just think it's a better foundation. So that communication skill, and, and you can, even in visual arts, I mean, I think it's whether maybe I'm wired differently because I came up from a print background, but mm. I just think you have to have that as a basis. And then you travel into which, whichever direction you want. These days, certainly it helps to be as multifaceted as you can. You know, you'll get requests all the time, either, either if it's going to be uh, something simple like, okay, you better know how to take a decent digital picture out in the field because they may have to do that on occasion. Or if you're going to shoot some video, you know, even reporters are shooting some of their own video. I'm a little uncomfortable with, you're going to lose some quality. I'm not a photographer, <laughs> you, know, and, you know, but there's, there's, but there's certain expectations these days. You got to be a little bit knowledgeable that in an emergency you can do that sure, stuff. Although I sure. think if you ask somebody to do everything, the qualities, your quality is going to go down. Definitely would agree with that. Yes. And um, again, the expectation that, and I think this is true. Most professions these days is that again, you're going to have to be, you're going to have to be nimble and you're going to have to be able to deal with, with moving to different, you have to expect instability. And that's part of the game these days. Mm-hmm. Then there's, on kind of a cerebral level, um, I think we just have to be a little bit, a, a little careful about uh, getting lost in social media. As, as an author these days, or as a journalist, you're expected to have, be active on Twitter, be active on Facebook. Yeah, I think you have to remember, though, that that stuff can nibble away <laughs> at the time that you spent on your craft and on your profession. And mm. it's, it's good to brand, but you can overbrand to the point where you, you forget what you're really about and where you become this, you become a name, but you don't become a journalist anymore. Yeah. And I, I wrestle with this all the time is there's times like, you know, in a book project right now, I would just like to shut down Twitter and Facebook and not be on there at all. Because I, it, you know, if you add up that five, 10, 15 minutes, at the end of the day, that could eat up an hour and a half or two hours of your day. <laughs> yeah. That can be spent either, well, I used to spend doing more pleasure reading than I used to, or you just get, you know, you got to remember you can promote yourself to death, but you got to remember that, man, you better be able to be a good reporter and a good writer and, and, take care of business first. And that's something that every, that percentage wise, how much do you promote yourself Mm -hmm. versus how much do I 
take care of business and and pay attention to my writing and my reporting. Mm-hmm. It's a really tough balance these days. Just don't get lost in that social media. I know it's important, but man, the basic thing you're in this business for is to write and report, right. uh, not advertise yourself. This episode of 2400 Shoe was produced by me, Tammy Katzoff, Associate Director of the Muhlenberg College Career Center. It was recorded on location by Paul Kremposky and engineered by Morgan Wolper at the studios of WMUH Allentown, Pennsylvania. Our opening and closing music from Cowboy Bebop is performed by the Muhlenberg College Jazz Big Band.